1992, at the 64th Academy Awards, the Disney film Beauty and the Beast made history when it was the first animated feature ever to be nominated for Best Picture. Animation wasn't part of the Oscars. They did not have their own category at that time. The Academy was not founded by animators. To be honored in a, in a time when there was only five Best Picture nominations and have Beauty and the Beast be one of those nominations was incredible. This is Beauty and the Beast producer Don Hahn. Do you remember where you were when you found out about the Academy Award nominations for Beauty and the Beast? Yeah, I do. I was living up in Santa Clarita. They were announced really early in the morning, as they always are, so that the East Coast gets the announcement. So I I, uh, set my alarm and I went downstairs. We had a newborn baby, and so I didn't want to wake our little girl up. And uh, I turned the TV on really softly and waited through the announcements. And then finally, they announced Best Picture and did it alphabetically. And when Beauty and the Beast came up first, there was a scream from the audience at the, at the Academy announcement. And there was a scream in the Han house. I was just uh, uh, like, I, I, I probably lost it, I think would be the word for it. So the whole family woke up. And then the, the cool thing is the phone started to ring. And it was Roy Disney calling, saying, I, I, I can't believe this. This is great. This never happened to Walt Disney. The five films nominated this year are so varied in their subject matter dealing as they do with opposites attracting, criminals interacting, history in question, cannibal indigestion, and last but not least, a beauty and a beast. Welcome to the Academy Museum Podcast. I'm Jacqueline Stewart. In this episode, 1992, Tale as Old as Time, we'll be talking with Jenny He, one of our curators at the Academy Museum, and producer Don Hahn about what Beauty and the Beast historic nomination meant for animated films. And later, we'll hear from the award-winning filmmaking duo, Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, of Spider-Verse fame, about Beauty and the Beast's impact and honoring animated films today. Animation goes back to the very beginning of cinema history. What is often considered the first fully animated film, Phantasmagorie, was released in 1908. The film is only about two minutes long and follows a stick figure as he encounters surreal figures, like a vase that turns into an elephant and sometimes the animator's own hand. Animation has continued to be a major component of filmmaking over the last century. I wanted to underscore how expansive the animation format was. We look at over a hundred years of animated stories, a completely wide range from 1914 to today, told through the lens of diverse animation artists. This is Jenny He, exhibitions curator at the Academy Museum. She curated Inventing Worlds and Characters, Animation, which walks visitors through the rich history of animated film. And it's impossible to talk about animation history without mentioning one of the biggest names in entertainment. The Disney Studio was founded in 1923 by Walt and Roy Disney. 
So we're all familiar with their first feature, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs from 1937. After years of making shorts and developing hand-drawn animation techniques, you remember a black-and-white Mickey Mouse whistling in Steamboat Willie. Disney released Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Snow White was the first hand-drawn, colored, and sound-synchronized animated feature. It was an endeavor that seemed impossible at the time, but laid the groundwork for an animation empire. Now, for the next 30 years, Disney animation was quite successful. Pinocchio, Bambi, Sleeping Beauty. We've met before. We, we have? Well, of course. You said so yourself. Once upon a dream. Hiya, Bambi. Watch what I can do. You see, Pinocchio, a lie keeps growing and growing until it's as plain as the nose on your face. And from this slumber you shall wake when true love's kiss the spell shall break. So in 1966, Walt Disney passed away. And Roy Disney, his brother, passed away um, in 71. And during this period of time, the Disney studio had a bit of leadership turmoil and uncertainty. This period became known as Disney's Dark Ages. In 1977, Disney released The Rescuers, an action-adventure film about two mice trying to rescue an orphan. The Rescuers performed well at the box office, and reviews were generally positive. But critics felt that it played it safe creatively compared to earlier classics like Pinocchio and Snow White. One of my exhibitions before I joined the Academy Museum was on filmmaker Tim Burton. And Tim had studied at CalArts, which was founded in part by Walt and Roy Disney to train animators for their studio. And Tim got a coveted animated job in 1979. He was plucked from CalArts. And I've heard from Tim himself and other animators about this period of time, the quote-unquote dark ages, where movies like The Fox and the Hound and The Black Cauldron, they really didn't take advantage of the wealth of talent working at Disney at the time. The Fox and the Hound had a troubled production. Longtime Disney animator Don Bluth clashed with production over artistic freedom and left Disney to start his own animation studio, taking 11 Disney animators with him. The Fox and the Hound was delayed by six months and released in 1981 to reviews saying it, quote, broke no new ground. The Black Cauldron released in 1985, was a box office failure. And then, in 1986, both Don Bluth and Disney released animated musicals starring Mice, clearly a popular choice. Disney's The Great Mouse Detective was outperformed at the box office by Don Bluth and Steven Spielberg's An American Tale. Disney started to turn it around with the 1988 summer smash hit that blended live action with animation. Who Framed Roger Rabbit? It dominated the box office and was honored at the Academy Awards for editing and visual effects. And in 1989, Disney films began to sing. The Little Mermaid kicked off what has come to be known as the Disney Renaissance. In some ways, this was a return to form, fairy tales and songs. But Disney also brought in something new, a Broadway powerhouse writing team. Composer Alan Menken and songwriter Howard Ashman, who first worked on The Little Mermaid, they were instrumental in the Disney Renaissance. Their next film, Beauty and the Beast, 
was not only nominated for best score, but three of the film songs were nominated for best song. Animation and musicals have been conjoined for a lot of cinema history. Animation has given rise to some of cinema's most memorable original songs. That run of Academy Award nominations and wins for best song and best score laid the groundwork for what was to come. The Disney Renaissance just simply reinvigorated a public interest in animation that had been cemented long ago. The thing that started to separate Disney animation from everybody else was personality animation. It was turning pencil drawings into characters that were living and breathing. This is Beauty and the Beast producer Don Hahn again. When I got to Disney, which was kind of a, a chance summer job kind of thing, I found a place that could challenge everything I had and more in terms of music and art. Don wasn't involved in animation at first. He was a percussionist and a painter in college. You know, these are all the odd cast-offs of high school who weren't necessarily into sports or other things, especially in animation. You know, we tend to be a group of introverts who really enjoys hours at a drawing board. He arrived at Disney in the late 1970s. Remember how huge Who Framed Roger Rabbit was for Disney? Don was an associate producer on that film. I moved to London for a couple of years and, and produced the animation on that. And so when I came back to Los Angeles, literally at the end of Roger Rabbit, I got a phone call from, I think, Jeffrey Katzenberg probably at the time, who said, hey, you want to take a crack at Beauty and the Beast? He became a producer for the film. Early on, Disney ran into some problems with the concepts for Beauty and the Beast. It's always been a story that's been problematic because it's, it's about a, a young girl whose father picks a rose in a garden and the Beast says, uh, bring me back your most valuable possession. And so um, the father goes home and says, you know, darling, I love you, but I'm going to take you back to this Beast's house. So it becomes a kind of a hostage situation. And as with many fairy tales, it's uh, inappropriate for modern audiences, I guess we can say. So I think the first task was to really examine that and say, how can we make this a story that we would want our children to see or want anybody to see? So, like the tagline on the theatrical poster read, Beauty and the Beast became, quote, the most beautiful love story ever told. A tale as old as time about love overcoming all obstacles. There's stories about what it is to be human, what it is to fall in love, what it is to grow up, what it is to be heartbroken. And we can't get enough of that when we go to the movies. After some trouble locking down a director and settling on a direction for the film, a key piece finally clicked into place. Broadway superstar songwriters Howard Ashman and Alan Menken became available to write the music. Ashman and Menken are one of the linchpins of that movie coming together. Remember, Ashman and Menken had won an Oscar for the Little Mermaid hit Under the Sea. They were the award-winning Disney aces on a team of fresh faces. The new directors, Kirk Wise and Gary Trousdale, had never directed a film before. They were in their 20s, but they were funny and they were story people. So we were with this fairly young and experienced group of people who were in love with the story and the possibility of turning this into a, a, a film. And then you start receiving songs from Howard and Alan. And as a filmmaker, it's inspiring, it's life-changing, it, because in a musical, the key plot points have to be in the songs. So you really rely on your songwriters to give you the, the peak emotional moments when a character can't do anything but break into song. By September of 1991, the film was almost finished and it was working. The songs were soaring, the side characters were funny, and the love story at the film's core was moving. And 
Since the Academy Awards had already honored Disney films for technical achievements in music, it didn't seem that out of the question to the team to campaign Beauty and the Beast for Best Picture. A publicist at Disney had an idea that sounded impossible. We're at this cusp of having animation be known again as an art form. Let's play Beauty and the Beast at the New York Film Festival. Well, that was insane. Like, the New York Film Festival ever play an animated film, much less Beauty and the Beast. And we showed it unfinished. A bold move. So that fall, the film was screened as a work in progress. Fully animated scenes were interspersed with storyboards and black and white pencil sequences. So we were covered in flop sweat, went to the theater and showed at Alice Tully Hall at Lincoln Center in front of an audience of, of New York critics and celebrities, and they loved it. It was like they, it's like they were going to a Broadway show. They applauded after every number, and it was, it was unbelievable. There was a five-minute-long standing ovation when the screening ended. And when Beauty and the Beast was released theatrically in November 1991, it became the first animated film to reach the $100 million mark at the box office in the U.S. and Canada. Critical response was overwhelmingly positive. Big names like Siskel and Ebert were pinning the film as a real contender for Best Picture. So I want to take you back to that Oscars night. This was not Don's first Oscar night. He had attended in 1988 for his work on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which was honored with Oscars for film editing, sound effects editing, visual effects, and a special achievement award for animation direction. That first time, Don sat in the back row. But in 1992, he was just a handful of seats away from the host. And walking into the Oscars for a Best Picture nomination was a very different feeling. This was at the Music Center at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. People were getting out of their cars on the street, and so you were hopping out of your car next to, uh, you know, celebrities and, and people in the industry. So it was a, a tremendous excitement. And so to go sit down in, in my seats that year were in the maybe eighth or ninth row. Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was very much a part of that success, wanted to be there too. Jeffrey Katzenberg and Michael Eisner were the two executives brought into Disney at the beginning of the Renaissance. So we're sitting there. I'm sitting next to uh, Jeffrey. I'm sitting behind Sylvester Stallone. And, and I'm saying, how did I get here? I, you know, I, I'm a, a cartoonist. I'm a musician. And nobody would expect to be in those shoes. And he, then finally you get to the point where Paul Newman, you know, gets up to read the best picture category with, I think, Elizabeth Taylor. And they say your name. And it, I mean, seriously, does that happen? Uh, no. So they say, you know, being the beast, uh, best picture. And, and then you wait. And the Oscar goes to the silence of the lambs. That year, Don wasn't holding the Oscar for Best Picture. But the night was hardly a bust. Alan Menken and Howard Ashman took home another Oscar for the film's titular song. The Oscar goes to Alan Menken and Howard Ashman for Beauty and the Beast from Beauty yeah. and the Beast. Howard Ashman had recently died of complications related to AIDS, and his partner gave a speech on his behalf. There's an inscription at Howard's grave in Baltimore it reads, oh, that he had one more song to sing. We'll never hear that song. 
but I'm deeply grateful for this tribute you've given to what he left behind. For Howard, I thank you. And we, we had rented out a place for all the animators in the old Hollywood Palace down in downtown Hollywood. It was packed with animators wearing their Converse high tops. And we went in holding Oscars in hand, not only uh, you know for Alan Menken and for Howard Ashman, and, and just to say, look what you did. You know, look, everybody, you made a movie that it hopefully will stand the test of time and hopefully will show people that animation is a great, great medium. I wanted to ask you if you were expecting any backlash when the awards campaign first began. Clearly, there were so many people who loved the film, but were, did you ever hear any questions or or criticisms that an animated film should not be nominated for Best Picture? I, I think, yes, always. I mean, this was pre-internet and pre, um, pre-crazy world we live in. Yes, I suppose there, there were elements, you know, it's, don't need to miss any names or anything, but elements that felt like, well, animation's really nice. It's a kid's medium and, um, and that's where it belongs. And it doesn't belong anywhere near the Oscars. But after the nomination for Best Picture for Beauty and the Beast, Don saw that attitude change. I think studios started to open their animation departments, departments that they never had or were never, you know, suddenly they're saying, well, we're in the animation business too. And that's a good thing. You know, that competition actually became very good. And as an audience, you start to see great movies from a lot of different people. And, you know, whether it be from Don Bluth or from DreamWorks or Miyazaki or whatever, you're starting to see a explosion of interest in animation. That's been 30 years ago, and now you virtually every movie's animated, and not in the traditional sense, but even the Marvel movies or whatever are f- full of animation. I don't think any, I don't think any of us could have seen that coming. But the tools of an animator have migrated into every filmmaker's toolbox, and that's exciting to see that. And 10 years after Beauty and the Beast's nomination for Best Picture, the Academy added a new category to the Oscars. Best Animated Feature. And the Oscar goes to Shrek. And the Oscar goes to Spirited Away. And the Oscar goes to Viva Latin America, Coco! And the Oscar goes to Toy Story 3. And the Oscar goes to Encanto! (laughs) After the break, we talk with filmmaking team Phil Lord and Chris Miller. Academy Award winners for Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, about animation's place at the Oscars today. These films are big, important films for everyone and shouldn't be treated as sort of babysitter fodder. Since 2002, animated features have had their own category at the Oscars. Two filmmakers who took home that award are Phil Lord and Chris Miller. The pair are writers, directors, and producers. Their first animated feature, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, made a splash when it was released in 2009. Cloudy is our um, the first feature we ever made. And it started out sort of like an animated version of Airplane, which is to say a parody of disaster movies. If you watched any five minutes of it, it was really funny and engaging. And if you watched any 20 minutes of it, you would fall asleep (laughs) because (laughs) there wasn't a very strong 
relationship story in the early iterations of the movie. Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs is about Flint Lockwood, an aspiring young scientist. Since he was a little boy, Flint Lockwood dreamed of being a famous inventor. Remote controlled television! The trouble was, his inventions tended to be a little unusual. But a guy like Flint never, ever gives up. Flint. Hi, Dad! And while the film was a goofy comedy about giant, sentient food, Phil and Chris realized the film only worked if the core of the story was actually about a son's relationship with his widowed father. The story needed a lot more warmth and a lot more of the, what at the time we thought of as like old fart stuff. <laughs> and it was all really about how to get his dad to say that he loved him. We realized that that was the real key to making movies that stood the test of time is that it has to be new and innovative and, and do something that hasn't been done before, either tonally or visually or both. But behind all of that has to be some basic relationship story that, that an audience can engage with and find truth in. Their reputation in animation was cemented by the success of their next animated feature, The Lego Movie. We have learned that Lord Business plans to end the world as we know it. There is yet one hope. The special has arisen. I think I got it, but just in case, tell me the whole thing again. I wasn't listening. They have been nominated for Best Animated Feature twice and won in 2019. And the Oscar goes to... Mimi, you were right. <laughs> Spider-Man into the there's a lot of oh, us. Wow. Hey, um, uh, wow. Thank you, Academy. Thank what you. was your reaction when you heard your names called? How did you feel when you won that award? I sort of blacked out. <laughs> How do you describe that moment, Chris? Phil and I were sitting next to each other, and we were, like, squeezing each other's hands as though it was some... Uh, uh, I don't know. It was very... It was like we were, like, yeah, we were like Miss America contestants. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I wanted to talk to Phil and Chris for this episode because despite their success, they feel that the film industry still doesn't take animated films seriously. I want to talk about the Variety column. After this year's Oscar ceremony, you wrote a guest column titled, Hollywood Should Elevate, Not Diminish Animation. Could you talk about what prompted you to write that piece? You know, we have noticed a trend at the ceremony itself of always describing the animation category as something for kids and, and making it feel like, oh, cartoons, these are just kid things. This is our funny little side thing that we're doing for the kiddos. And then we'll get back to the adult films. Once upon a time, parents took their children to see animated features. Today's animation has reached such a level of sophistication that the children take their parents. So many kids watch these movies over and over and over and over and over and over and over. Mm -hmm. and over. Mm -hmm. I see some parents out there know exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> Here are the nominees for Best Animated Feature Film. It's important to us that 
that the world film audience look at these pictures as some of the best pictures that are made every year, because they are. It's also important to us as, you know, stewards of an art form to promote sophisticated filmmaking. And it's not that we don't want families to be able to access a lot of these movies. It's just that we want people to understand these films as works of art. It's that perspective that guided them in making Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Amy Pascal, the head of Sony at the time, had worked with Phil and Chris on Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. She approached them about doing an animated Spider-Man feature. And Phil and Chris knew that the only way another Spider-Man movie would work is if it felt innovative and new. Okay, let's do this one last time, yeah? For real this time, this is it. My name is Miles Morales. I was bitten by a radioactive spider, and for like two days, I've been the one and only Spider-Man. The first major choice? They decided their Spider-Man would be young Afro-Latino Miles Morales, not Peter Parker. The second? Groundbreaking visuals that would transport audiences inside a comic book. Let's make some images that feel like three-dimensional comic book images that feel painted and handmade. We had long felt like, you know, you see these art of books and these amazing stylish paintings uh, and drawings that people do of, of visual development for the look of a movie. And then you see the movie and it's cool and it looks great, but why can't it look like the actual painting that it was inspired by? Uh, and the answer was because it's really hard. So how did you do it? I mean, what were the tools that you used? Like, because you had to invent new strategies in order to achieve this goal. In order to make something that looks completely different, you basically have to challenge the entire system. Phil and Chris turned to CG animation, normally used for special effects in live action films. These tools usually create environments and effects that look as realistic as possible. But Phil and Chris wanted to create a vibrant, stylized, animated world that blended the look of 2D and 3D. The tools can be used to do anything. Every single shot is a bespoke shot using a set, a palette of tools that were generated. But there's a lighting artist behind every single shot, and they're making intuitive human choices using the power of a machine but ultimately, it's a human hand that's creating that shot. And this huge undertaking and focus on artistry paid off for them when they won the Oscar. It's not an individual accomplishment, right? It is really the most collaborative art form there is in existence, is making a film. You know, there are 500 people that worked on that film. And so much creativity and brilliance and innovation and thoughtfulness from all of them. And there's something really beautiful about that. And Phil and Chris recognized that same artistry in a film they grew up with, Beauty and the Beast. Since this episode, we're focusing on Beauty and the Beast and its 1992 Best Picture nomination. And I'm wondering how that relates to what you're describing. What do you think is the legacy of that nomination? I remember when that film was unfinished and I think they screened a half completed, half pencil test version of the movie 
And I was in high school and dying to see it because I wanted to see the process behind everything. It was positioned from the jump as a Best Picture contender. And so you really got the sense of, like, the campaign for this film is you're going to the theater to be dazzled and elevated and called to your best human qualities. <laughs> the ballroom sequence was famous for being a mix of a computer-generated background and a three-dimensional camera move with these two-dimensional characters dancing in the middle of it as though it were, you know, a dolly move on a crane, something that had never been seen before in a 2D animated film. What I appreciate about that film is its ambition. You know, it's going for it on every level. It's not afraid to be a little scary. The Beast is an unbelievably complicated animated <laughs> character. Like, nothing about that movie is really playing it safe. And, th and that's what I really love about it, is it's trying to be the best picture of the year. <laughs> it's trying to be the best movie that Disney's ever made. And if you're not always trying for that, like, what are you doing? You know, you, you want your crew to think, like, we're doing something special. And if you fall short of the mark, fine. <laughs> but I'm we're always just trying to, like, you know, give the audience something they haven't had before. And th that movie is aiming for excellence on every in every category. Absolutely. Yeah, but that make you wonder, now that there's a Best Animated Feature category, what would happen to a film like Beauty and the Beast now <laughs> in terms of where it could be placed for recognition? Sure, you know, and you wonder, like to me, when, when I'm filling out my ballot, and Chris and I are proud Academy members, we, you know, I always look at like, well, which is the, what was the best documentary? What was the best foreign language film to me? What was the best animated film? And don't they belong in this best picture category? Beauty and the Beast wasn't the last animated film to be nominated for best picture. The Pixar films Up and Toy Story 3 were nominated in 2010 and 2011, but neither won. So far, no animated film has ever taken home the Oscar for Best Picture. It's a little surprising that those, those films don't wind up in the big category. It stands to reason that they should. On this first season of the Academy Museum podcast, we've taken deep dives into stories from our Academy Awards history gallery, looking at historic moments across decades of Oscars history. From Halle Berry to Sasheen Littlefeather, from The Brave One to Beauty and the Beast. We've talked about what those moments on stage and behind the scenes have meant for the winners and nominees, for the Academy, for the film industry, and for the culture. We hope you enjoyed this season, and we'll be back soon with more, including some bonus episodes featuring great interviews that we're excited to share with you in full. The Academy Museum podcast is written and hosted by me, Jacqueline Stewart. This episode was produced by Victoria Alejandro and edited by Sofia Paliza Carr. The Academy Museum podcast team includes Antonia Sarajito, Victoria Alejandro, Kimberly Stevens, and Monica Bushman. The show is a production of the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures in collaboration with Elias Studios. Mixing by E. Scott Kelly, with engineering help from Donald Potts. 
Antonia Sarahito and Leo G are the executive producers for LAS Studios. Our Academy Museum website, academymuseum.org, is designed by Fantasy and developed by Impossible Bureau. Our LAS website, elias.com slash podcast, is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at LAS Studios. The Academy Museum marketing team created our branding. Thanks to the team at the Academy Museum, including Sean Anderson, Peter Castro, Stephanie Sykes, and Matt Youngner. And to our Academy colleagues, Randy Haberkamp and Claire Lockhart. Thanks also to the team at Elias Studios, including Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Cosentino, and Leo G. Academy Museum digital engagement platforms, including this podcast, are sponsored by Bloomberg Philanthropies. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.